This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. Meet Emma McQuiggan. She is the global lead of enterprise and industry technologies at a company, a little company you might have heard of, called Accenture. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Albert, and thank you for having me. Before we dive into your report, which was awesome, I read it, it's about interoperability. So those of you listening, we're going to talk about interoperability today, a little bit of a tongue twister. But if anyone doesn't know what Accenture is, can you, let's start there. What is Accenture? I don't know. It's got a few employees here and there, I think. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. We have we have over 720,000 of them globally. We we operate in over 120 countries. We're basically a professional services company who help our clients to tap into digital cloud security to unlock the promise of technology and human ingenuity. And that's what we're all about, trying to unlock that value. Exactly. So for anyone out there listening who maybe you haven't worked at a major company before that needed the services of an Accenture, but I remember working for Mondelez at the time. Mondelez is the big snack maker. They make brands like Oreo and Ritz and Accenture is their technology partner helping them implement all these things that they need. So they're not talking about implementing like little bits of software. We're talking about like massive projects typically, like they needed to bring actual manufacturing plants, supply chain plants online, upgrading systems there, integrating into order management systems. So huge, huge projects. Emma, you recently put out with your colleagues at Accenture a report about interoperability. Now, we hear this all the time at the enterprise level. Uh, Some of the small businesses, interestingly, like native cloud businesses, they kind of already know about it. They're just kind of building in that direction. But you saw an interesting factoid. I believe the lead headline was that companies with better interoperability can generate six times more revenue. I hope I have that right. Dive into that. Start there. What is going on and how is this unlocking that much growth? I think you kind of have to start, Albert, with the context that we're living in. We're living in this massively disrupted environment. Black swan events have become the norm. And there's all of this unprecedented level of uncertainty. And it doesn't matter whether, whether, you know, we've seen organizations need to go through a transformation to be more agile, to be more resilient, to have more flexibility so they can respond quickly to challenges in supply chains, to needing to reduce cost spend, to unlock and drive into new business models and new, new revenue models. And when you have all of that, you need to really focus on how you can be agile. At the same time, I mean, over the last 10 years, the average enterprise, large enterprise has exploded the number of enterprise applications that they've got. So they've gone from, you know, 70 or 80 up to five, six, seven, 800. Mm. Now, if you think about that for a minute and you think about all the silos that have been created, you want to be agile and your applications are all, there's that many applications and they're not talking to each other, then that's a problem. But if we go back to what's happening, we've also got things like cloud. We've got data and AI, and that's suddenly enabling something new. So if you can get those applications to talk to each other and drive that interoperability vision, then you can unlock all that value because you're breaking down the silos. And then when when the CFO wants to change something, they can understand real time how that's going to impact how the supply chain operate, you know, the chief supply chain operator is going to be working. And it's that sort of vision of having everything interconnected to drive down these silos that we see in traditional organizations 
that that's where that opportunity sits. And that's why you can unlock so much more value and revenue. So for yourselves, like I think that's an accepted truth, right? I think more companies want to be interoperable, but companies kind of are stuck sometimes with limited capability, whether it's in talent or maybe their equipment. I guess, what are the boardrooms? What are CEOs? What are big companies? What are they thinking about in terms of getting and upgrading their systems so that it can be more interoperable? Is it widely accepted? It feels like it should be widely accepted, but I don't know. Maybe you run into companies that are like, oh, I don't think so, Emma. I, I don't want to inter- <laughs> I don't want that. Well, you know, we see companies in the research we did, we saw companies falling into kind of three groups. And the first group were not really investing at all in interoperability and they weren't investing in the technologies that would open up interoperability. Because what has opened up the ability to have that interoperability is is cloud, it's composability, it's having this, this these open a, APIs. And so this first third, they just weren't investing in technologies that enabled that sort of outcome. They were stuck in their legacy world. The second third were investing in the technologies, but not in the interoperability. And they weren't going the extra the extra mile. And it's only a two to 4% increase in, in IT spend to get to the interoperability. So whilst they had put in the right technology solutions, they weren't connecting them. And the third third had invested in those technologies and they had really invested in the interoperability and they were the ones who had seen that revenue increase. They were the ones who'd had the vision to really go all the way to leapfrog everybody else and think about the value they'd get because of the agility they'd then have, because of the that that single view of data they'd have across their organization and the value it would give them. And that value, that understanding of that picture needs to come from the C-suite down. This isn't tech doing it for themselves. It's about the business being connected across on it, leading with the CEO. And that's that's where we see the real difference. One third of the companies in your research are completely embracing interoperability. It sounds like two thirds are either on the fence or just not doing it. So I got to know, like besides tech, because I would assume it's tech companies, who is leaning into interoperability? Because it seems like this should be a widely accepted standard of, uh, as a way to go. But clearly from the research, it's showing that that's not the case. So what are some industries that are embracing it maybe more than the others? So great question there on industry. And there'll be no surprise that the, that, you know, because this is over a period of years, the organization of investing in interoperability. Life sciences was the big winner during the pandemic because of the need to go and invest in a solution for a global solution for vaccines. Now, life sciences companies who invested in an interoperability saw a 10% increase in their revenues compared to just 5% for those who didn't invest. You compare that with an industry like travel, who were really badly hit. They didn't have the money to invest during that same three-year period. And some of those industries saw their revenues decline really significantly. You know, you you could be looking with no interoperability declining. We're still seeing declines of up, you know, four, five, six percent. But the ones who invested in the interoperability, their revenues increased by two percent. So even in those industries where they were really badly hit, investing in interoperability and they're still seeing that step that step change improvement. You know, you mentioned earlier at the top of the conversation that black swan events or major events that maybe shift your business models very quickly continue to happen and they are predicted to happen more frequently. You used a great example of the pandemic, which we're now, you know, coming out of, but obviously it was a huge part of our lives the last two, three years. During that time period, you know, we've seen the shift to remote work, that's a big change, change the way businesses operate. We've seen major shifts in from retail sector, for example, supply chain changes, labor changes, like things continuously change. Give us an idea of, because you mentioned it's 
the first step is like, I guess, embracing cloud, modern APIs. You know, when these industries that maybe aren't software native, what do you think it's going to take for those next two thirds to see this is the, this is the way that this is the way to adopt and change and handle this change? That is, like you said, it's going to happen probably more frequently. And if it doesn't, I I think of like it's scary to know my competitors can be that agile. I I would think so. You know what I mean? If I'm in a big business and everything's very competitive, it's scary to know that my competitor might be able to handle this supply chain disruption, but maybe I can't. Like that sounds bad. You know, I think. The thing we've got to look at here is really what's enabling that interoperability to happen. Now, interoperability is not a new a new thing. I've been I've been in the tech sector for nearly 30 years. I spent my first 15 years as an engineer. I used to make my dollar off of coding in the techie middleware, trying to you know work through all the Corba the Corba de, you know, decomposing. The thing that's happened, there's been a whole load of technology change that just makes interoperability easier, but it has to be accompanied by the right behaviors and the right vision. And we talk a lot about the three C's, Albert. So you've already mentioned cloud. The companies who've already invested in the the transition to public cloud, we see their results driving forward. And so cloud becomes that that first step because it enables all of that data and AI across the enterprise. But the next thing we talk about is composable technologies. And it's this is the thing that's really different. It's that ability with because of the openness of the of the enterprise platforms in a way that they weren't before. You know, you look at how Salesforce interlocks with Mule, uses MuleSoft to allow them to plug and play different solutions. And all of the enterprise partners have really thought about moving to this open API. And that creates this opportunity for composable technology, the opportunity to plug and play like we never did could before. And the third piece is the third C and it's collaboration and collaboration because it's not about running in business silos anymore. And this is all about the people. It's all about human behavior and recognizing that humans, even within a corporation, they're better off working together, not sitting in their silo, but the value that they have when they can operate across the enterprise. And it's when you think about what do those other two thirds need to do? Well, that they almost need to start with the collaboration. Because if they believe in the collaboration, if they believe in the value they can share together, then the decision to move to cloud-based technologies, the decision to adopt composable technology through open API technology solutions becomes much more natural. So I love the way you say that. It's like this follows many leadership models, which they talk about. The first steps to transforming an organization or building a better organization usually starts with the people. It always starts with people and technology comes after people. There is no point in having great technology if you don't have a great plan for how you're going to integrate all these systems. I use the analogy of like, hey, if it, that's like asking a bunch of subcontractors to come together with no blueprints and build a house. I guarantee it will not be a good house. It's like a guarantee. You know what I mean? You will not get what you want. For the companies you work with, when you're doing these research projects, are you also on the consulting side where you're doing advisory work or is most of your role in the research of what the outcomes for these companies uh, at Accenture? Oh, no, my role, my role is to do both. And actually, that's a principle within how we work in Accenture. We like to really make sure that we are a foot in today and a foot in tomorrow so that we're thinking about how we're delivering and driving the best we can for our clients today. And we're thinking about the opportunities that are coming maybe maybe tomorrow, but maybe next week, maybe next year. So we've got that that investment looking forward. And so the research we do is about reinforcing that the things we're driving today, which is, and this is, this is a sort of today, tomorrow piece. We complement that with some of the other things we do, which are much more, you know, how is the metaverse going to transform the way we, you know, the way we think and work. And actually, of course, 
if you think about what we need with interoperability, the metaverse will only be super successful if we have it. So we definitely do. As you back up, we, for my role, I, you know, the, the role I have is to drive our services, our implementation work with our clients across all of our enterprise partners. That's essentially what I do. Um, so, so definitely for today and definitely when we go and run these surveys, we're working with clients where we're already we're, we're working and asking clients where we're already working with them. But we go broader than that and we reach out to to organizations who aren't necessarily our clients, too. So we can really get a good spread of input on this survey data. That's excellent. So when the collaboration piece comes to play, because surely you've worked on projects where they're just beginning, you know maybe they've tipped into they're going to go from that lower two thirds to the higher performing upper third and they sit down and you have that first discussion. How does that discussion typically map out? Does it start with your team kind of mapping out, Hey, in industries like yours, this is what companies are trying to say yes to. How does that mapping collaboration process even begin? Because, you know, I always think to myself, if I knew the answer, I would have done it and I wouldn't have called you. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> So you're like, who should I involve? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, well, capability could be a problem, right? But I would say we tailor the conversation a little bit to who we're talking to because of the barriers people put in. I talked earlier about the number of enterprise applications. So if you're having the conversation with the CIO, the CIO could be talking about the technology issue. You know, they're thinking about the challenges they have because you know, 66% of the, of, the, of the challenges in the technology space were about the number of applications and the, the perceived technical complexity of being able to, to drive the interoperability. But then if you go talk to somebody who's maybe running a business unit, then it's more of a lead, it's that behavioral challenge that we talked about. It's the leadership challenge. And they don't see that their business goal is necessarily tied to an application goal and they're thinking in their business silo. You then need to bring the different business units together. So say, well, what if instead of having, you know, multiple supply chain processes when you're all producing the same product, what if we simplified it? We standardize around a single data model. We standardize around a single process or, or, or a very small number of processes. And then we can plug in the, the, the specialist applications, which are going to give you the specialism that you need. And we can do that easily because now we've got this digital core and we can plug in these intero using interoperability, these specialist applications, which are going to drive that value. And it's a very different way of thinking. And then you can drive from that. When we have that conversation, we can say, well, think about the value because now you're on, you can get there quicker because it doesn't take so long because you've driven simplicity in and you can understand much more readily the impact of changing something here to the outcome over here in a way that's very different. You can bring believers, right? So you can, the CIO, you can start to work with them and you can start to work with the business leaders, but then there's a financial challenge. And what we found is that, you know, 34% of believe that there's still, it's still more expensive to drive interoperability through, through their solutions. But actually what we found is that top third, we're only spending between two and 4% more than the the non and, and you go well if you can unlock all that value then why would you not invest that little bit more we tailor the conversations to whoever we're talking about but albert i think it's really important we recognize that if we're going if organizations are going to adopt this it can't just sit with the cio right this is like and the cio is increasingly becoming the the, the hero and the, they're driving the engine of, of of the business in any case because technology is the enabler that's driving that agility that we talked about right at the beginning well, that's also because, you know, when, when you say that, it's not the CIO's 
sole responsibility is the one thing that we keep hearing from all of our different guests that have joined us on IT Visionaries is they continuously talk about customer uh, customer or client experience. That's one of the big, big drivers. Everyone wants to improve that. They know that that's got to get better all the time. And typically that involves many, many systems working together or business operations working together from you know back of house to front of house, no matter what kind of business you're in. When you meet companies where maybe the just a handful of the team is thinking about this, whereas the other team members are not, is that an easy conversation to have? It's like, hey, you need to involve more people. So I used to always use this airline example of a lot of airlines for those of us that fly, uh, which hopefully everyone's getting to travel again. Um, but like the way airlines want to treat diamond members or high status members, they want to bring their bags out first. Like that is actually quite a feat. You know, it's quite a feat because you have the gate agent, you have the, un, you know, the the luggage handlers down below. Uh, if it gets lost and rerouted, then you probably have delivery systems. And so multiple systems have to all talk to each other just to give you that great service that, hey, I'm going to bring you your bags first. And so when you hear of companies that want to talk to you, but maybe they're not quite ready to have all their team members involved yet, like, is that an easy conversation to have? Or is it, or is it when you help them map out like the process that they want their customers to experience? It becomes quickly self-evident that it's not just a CIO problem, like you suggested. It is a company problem that they have to solve together in order for all these systems to work. Because the systems, like you said, they're the end of the solution, not the beginning of it. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more with that statement. So we talked about tailoring the conversation for who you're talking to. But I think it's really important we don't get too far down the line with one part of an organization before talking to everybody who's going to be, all the stakeholders who are going to be impacted. It's like any change. There's a human person sitting in that change and they need to feel part of the decision making. Otherwise, it's being done to them and they reject. And this goes to the collaboration. If we talk about the cloud, you know, the, the, the composable tech and the collaboration, it has to be done collaboratively. So it's not being done to this person. They're part of the decision. They're part of the moving forward. So I think the first thing I would say is you don't you don't want to get too far ahead because you certainly don't want to create barriers in an organization where you know one half the organization is all in with with the approach around you know driving interoperability and the other half are going no 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 that's a waste of money that's so you have to kind of take everybody together but the most important thing here is that it's leader led if it's the whole organization that's going to move then the ceo needs to recognize why this is important and it becomes you know it becomes an executive board discussion so they understand the value that you can unlock and at accenture we talk a lot about total enterprise reinvention and the need to 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 drive this transformation very much quicker we talk about compressed tech transformation when you're driving multiple areas of transformation simultaneously you're only going to be able to do that if you use interoperability because you and I both know it'll never work otherwise. So you think about how you're going to create that digital core and then you can start to plug in the different pieces, which are the specialism for the different business units or the different functions that you're working with. And that's really how we think about this. And that's why it's a, the, 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 the executive board needs to understand the value of it and the, the CIO needs to understand the how and the, you know, and then you can get to a position which can really work. And then you get to a place where your application strategy doesn't, you know, it doesn't just align to the business strategy, but the two are tied together. So the business strategy and the application strategy are 
in complete lockstep driving each other. And I think that's a really important thing. And when we talked about the third who were furthest away from this value, they're not thinking about how to link those two things together and they're still remaining very disparate. So, and that's where we see the need to bring those two things together, align that business strategy with the application strategy. So together they can move the organization forward. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. The, the, that complete alignment has to be necessary. Right now, most companies are very uncertain, murky about the future. There's definitely economic changes in front of us, right? The other thing that we know that's going to happen is more CEOs and CIOs are going to be asked, hey, what is my time to value on these projects? Hey, what are the costs going to be? How long is it going to be before I get an ROI? I'm sure these questions get hit with you. How do you address these types of things? Because like you said, there's a 2 to 4% increase in cost potentially. It's relatively, it sounds okay. Right. It sounds like that's a good threshold, but I'm sure these questions could ask you. So when you think of like these great projects in their well run, what is my time to value? How fast can I see an ROI? How long is it going to be? How effective is it going to be? And of course, everyone wants to know how much it's going to cost. <laughs> you already answered that. 2%. You're good. <laughs> so, the, um, so let me, maybe let me take a step back. Cause actually I would say one of the key, the key parts of why you would drive the interoperability is data. Data is like the core of why you're doing it because you want to be able to have all this data running through. And the quicker you can get to the data being connected, the quicker you can unlock the value. And normally, I would say like we've worked with different clients and the, there is a definite path to value. I mean, I worked with a telco not so many, long, many years ago and they had a specific issue where they couldn't get iPhones delivered to their customers on the day the iPhones were released. And we know that's fairly often, right? Like pretty much, you know, once every 12 to 18 months, there's going to be a new iPhone. And people, there are certain customers who want to get those iPhones on that day. If you think about how you do that, that's about customer experience and, and it's all about customer. But to be able to do that, you're in supply chain. It's all going all the way through the organization from marketing and the customer services all the way back through to supply chain, to distribution. To do that, which sounds like a pretty simple thing, you would think, you know, if you're in the business of getting phones to people, you'd be able to do it in a way that you can plan it, that the day an iPhone comes out, you can do it. Well, if you pause and think about the complexity of what needs to be, all the pieces that need to be joined together, and it's data in the middle of all of that that's going to allow that to happen. Now, in that example, you can measure success based on the NPS scores and the stickiness of the clients. Because if the, the customers, the customers are going to keep coming back if you can meet their demand. So you can quite quickly tie value to it. And what you might find, and we've done this with some clients, is you can connect the data quicker and then maybe do some of the core transformation below the covers whilst you're already starting to unlock some of that early doors value. And then as, the, as you finish the implementation of your new solutions, which are all connected, you, you no longer have to pull the data out. You can pull, you, the data is all connected real time. So there are pieces that we do to help unlock value quicker whilst under the covers, you're sort of changing the engine, if you like, under the covers. And I think the technologies we have today allow us to do these sorts of things and create these data aggregation platforms at the same time that we're driving that interoperability. And then you could say, well, why don't you just stick with the data aggregation platform? Why would you go to, to go through the, re, the whole transformation? And you go through the entire transformation because it's giving you that sustainability for the long term. It's giving you that resilience because as, as your applications change, as you, then it's all being connected real time rather than every time you make a change, you've got to go back to the data aggregation and make another change, make another change, make another change. And so that's how we start to think about that to accelerate the path to value it's like, what could we be doing to help start to drive some of the 
value, whether it's a saving or it's a different, you know, different opportunity quicker. And we start to think about it differently. And then, of course, depending on the levels of complexity, depending on the level of simplicity, of simplification and standardization clients are prepared to take, then we can continue to work at how we, if we, the more simplification clients are prepared to make, Albert, the more we can reduce price because, you know, I said at the beginning, we're a professional services business. So that's sort of how we think about it. And we, you know, it depends how many pieces you're trying to connect, but what we're all about with this interoperability piece is about standardizing how we plug things together, reusable ability, you know, like a reusable framework to plug things in or having pre-built solutions within industries that we can just deploy straight out. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why Salesforce platform is growing the way it's growing is because of the fact that you can plug so many things in and becomes that that data flow layer that you talked about. That is, I liked how you addressed it. It's like, it's not clear what the cost or time to value is, but I, it's pretty clear. Like if you can get data flowing on the same rails everywhere, your chances go up, your ability to deliver services, add services, remove roadblocks, just goes up so much higher. That's like the first project to tackle. For yourself, you know, we did a little homework on you. We found a podcast that you had been on previously where you mentioned, hey, like when you were younger, um, you wanted to be prime minister because you wanted to fix the world. It sounds like you're kind of doing it. Give us an idea. Like, were you always a problem solver? Like, what, what did you mean by you wanted to be, you wanted to fix the world? It's one of those things where we find that a lot of people in tech, they often have this itch. Like they, they think I can build something that changes this. Well, I would say I've definitely always liked solving problems. I can remember taking a series of bikes apart, always managed to rebuild them. So that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Motorbike or a uh, pedal bike? Pedal bikes. But from quite a young age, I used to, my mum would be come out and my bike would be in pieces all over the garden. Um, so no, so there's a, I, it's very, for me, it's sort of ingrained. There's one to understand how things work. How we can, you know, how we can make them work better, how we can solve a problem, how we can fix something. Also just a strong motivation to try and make the world a little bit better in the time that you're here for. I do feel very lucky in what I do because we are able to affect a lot of change. And it's everything from culture to opportunity to solutions that we create, which make it easier for people to have a healthier and better life experience and so and i you know i'm not i'm not trying to say everything we do is that but but there is you know we we i mean just the number of people that we employ for example and you know th there's a whole load of things where i i feel very privileged in terms of what i get to do every day for sure how did you first get into coding because you mentioned before also that it sounds like your hands are on the keyboard coding building building applications how did you first get into coding so my dad was a contractor an it contractor in fact, he, he, he graduated as a mechanical engineer. He didn't really enjoy it. Went to work for a mechanical engineering company. One year in, they were standing up their first IT department. He had to go and deliver something to them. And they said, oh, we're looking for people to, to, to come and join us. Try this aptitude test. He did the aptitude test and he was employee number one in the IT department. So I grew up in an environment like that. And we had a desktop computer at home. And I taught myself to code on it using some old accountancy package. And I, was in, I have an engineering degree out of the um, master's degree out of the University of Edinburgh. And the stuff I loved most was all the coding. I was the only person in my class who actually liked machine coding, but you know, somebody has to. I ended up at Accenture, very long story short, ended up here. And I spent the first, the first half of my career, the first 15 years really doing coding, architecture, engineering, all of the stuff at that back end of things. And, and then in the second half of my career, it's really been much broader into more of the business end. 
so that's my like, little quick potted history as to how I got into the coding and it's always there and my kids are um I remember trying to teach my kids to do um you know when they do the hour of code and doing some stuff and then they're like can we do this and I was like oh hang on and then spending the next they'd done their hour of code and I spent the next the rest of the day coding up this super fancy thing and they were like and I was super pleased and they were not very impressed <laughs> <laughs> that's the curse of being the mom no matter what yeah. they're not going to give you credit yeah, until later exactly. maybe later but when they're young they're not going to give you credit like mom this sucks like <laughs> <laughs> thing the interesting thing about being a software engineer in the last shoot i guess it's like the last it's weird okay i guess 30 you know 25 30 years is you also got to see the rise of interoperability opportunity because the reality is when you were getting started most systems were closed you know most systems were closed when they started opening up did you foresee what was going to happen or i guess when did you really say like okay the more things that we can connect best of breed services like this is going to be the future was it like when the rise of cloud was it was it the rise of APIs? What was were, were there any like hints for you? Like you're like, wow, this is going to fundamentally change everything. Well, so there was a particular project that stands out for me. And I went to work for an insurance company and everybody else was doing Y2K work. So, you know, everybody thought the world was going to end when we clicked over the new, <laughs> the new century. I, I remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I was an intern doing Y2K work too. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working on creating an e-commerce solution for general insurance. So general insurance is car and house insurance. And at the time, essentially the, the ability to quote sat on mainframe codes on mainframe in a mainframe system with green screen access. And they were using pulling all the data off the green screens and they were pushing it through some Microsoft power tool to drive a call center solution. So that in itself is quite clever for the time, right? Not wildly anymore, but actually, if you think about where we were at the time, it was quite exciting. And we were asked to create an e-commerce solution. And we, at the time, you couldn't do an awful lot, but it was because it was when you could first really put transactions through browsers. We ended up using a beta version of IBM Component Broker to plug mainframe, like this main strip, these green screen stripping mainframe plugin. We were using an ad adaptation of what had been built in VB for the call center. I was using the IBM Component Broker to, to manipulate it all. I was having to write, we were having to write these wrappers between Java and C++ because it was the only way you could get everything to talk to each other. And I remember we got to, we went to do a demo of the prototype to the client. And my boss at the time, he said, well, you've got to come because it's your work. And I went, no, I'm not coming because I don't think it's going to work. And then <laughs> real time, I can fix it, right? And it's really funny, Albert, because that was the point when, when we had delivered that and it had gone live and you could not just do quotes, but you could do sales and write it back to the mainframe. I was like, actually, this is kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. that this And this is where it changes. And that was pre-cloud because that was in, well, it was, it was at the time of Y2K. And that was the moment when I thought there's something really interesting cooking up here. And obviously it's taken a long time to get, because you have to have that open API and that was all closed. It was all closed within the systems of that particular client. But you think about that today and it's pretty amazing where we came from to where we are today. Yeah, I love how you named like six languages. You know, we had to use C, we had to use Java, VB. I haven't heard VB since the days of CS101, circa 1998. <laughs> That's where I was interning. That's why I got to do Y2K work. For those that don't know, it's Visual Basic. Don't look it up. You're not going to be impressed. <laughs> Definitely so, not. So, it's not doing anything for my credibility. Don't so. download yourself a copy of Visual Basic and try to do something. Don't worry about that. Okay, guys. Uh, but. For the, the CIOs and CTOs and engineers that were around in the, that 90, you know, 90, 
2008 to 2000 timeframe, everyone remembers. We all remember. We were doing that thing. The reason why I asked that is because I want to talk about what youth see for the future now, because certainly there's more technology and opportunities, services, microservices, cloud services, like things that you just didn't even, you know, that just didn't exist just a handful of years ago, maybe a handful of months ago. Right now we got chat GPTs all over my my screen. Everyone's talking about chat GPT. I downloaded a copy and played with it. Man, it is pretty crazy. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. For yourself, what do you what are you most excited about? What are some of the technologies you think are going to possibly change your field in the next few years? Uh, you know, these these prediction conversations happen all the time at the end of the year. And here you are. We're asking you, what's going to change? What are you most excited about? What are some of the things you'd love to invest more time and energy in learning about um, that you think is going to change interoperability or just business in general? So I think interoperability is kind of like the fact it's becoming easier is really going to change because it sort of lifts off some of the restrictions that we have today in how we think about things. And, and so I think it becomes one of the key enablers for today. One of the things which is not new, but is grossly underused in my opinion, because we don't, we haven't quite worked out why it's great, is the technology that sits around distributed ledger. Because I really don't think we've really thought about what it means to not have to go and store something in one place. And the fact that you can drive the whole history of, a, of an object on that distributed ledger. And there's something around that that I still don't think we've really tapped in. And uh, I think so that I think there's still a whole load of untapped opportunity. And the third thing that I'm really excited about at the moment, I have, I have three kids, but I have two teenage boys who spend an inordinate amount of time on gaming platforms in a highly sociable way. And they are in many respects so far ahead in terms of collaborating, in terms of using immersive tech, in terms of thinking about avatars and how they express themselves and collaborating and team building in a virtual way than businesses, than any of our industries that we work within. And there's something around that whole culture. And then you think about the scope of what's available within the metaverse, within Web 3.0, as those kids who've grown up. And, you know, we used to talk about kids growing up as digital natives. This, this is a whole level beyond because this is like a whole level of sociability that we... Yeah, connected natives. Yes. Yes, that's a great... I love that. Connected natives. And I think as they come of age, I think they're going to open up a whole load of opportunity. So I think I think for the next sort of 10 years, that's where, and, and then it will transform, all of that coming together is going to transform the pace with which we see AI, all these different things. It's going to, we're going to have, we're all going to have an agent working with us doing our, you know, helping us do our, our roles, whatever our roles are. You can see all of that. It's sort of, you can almost see it happening to you. And then if you go like the time beyond that, and you think about everything that is going on with biotech and, you know, that whole science tech speak and, and how tech tech is going to influence science tech to get to different bio outcomes, I think, and the whole personalization around that. I'm also wildly excited about that. And if I keep going, I'm going to cover everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, myself, I have three kids. I only have one teenager. My other kids are younger, but what's fascinating the way you described it is because I see it as well. I see in my kids and I call them native meaning like, you know, they're not native digital. They're like native communicators, meaning there's never been a time in my kids' lives or nor your kids' lives where they haven't been able to communicate with just about anyone in the world over a device in real time. It's it's pretty fascinating. The thing that I've observed probably that's going to be mean the biggest change in the future is like how fast kids now can, let's say, address their desire to learn. So like I did not 
Growing up for me, my parents had to make me learn stuff. I wasn't a naturally like curious person. I was. I didn't do well in school. I, I think I was curious, but I didn't do well in school. But my kids, the 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 stuff they're teaching themselves, like one of my kids is teaching himself how to program on Roblox, like you just talked about, like secondary worlds. Another one learned how to solve Rubik's cubes. The other one is more of an athlete, but he's constantly researching, like how do I get better at ice hockey? And I'm like these are things that are fundamentally going to change. They're changing, and they're changing the world right now as we speak. Now, what it's going to lead to, I don't quite know, but I do know this: like school, schooling now, like doesn't know how to handle this. You know what I mean? School, like. Kids have now, they're they're at completely different arenas of intelligence in a single grade. Yeah, it's crazy. I completely agree with that. Well, Emma, it was awesome having you on the show. You know, when hearing your story of where you came from, from breaking down bikes to now leading global teams, helping companies <laughs> adopt interoperability, it's pretty fascinating. Now I know why you weren't a mechanical engineer. You mentioned your dad didn't really like it. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was like, oh, you would be mechanical engineer. You're building the bikes and stuff. But for those who are interested, the name of the report is Value Untangled. It is accelerating radical growth through interoperability. It is published by Accenture. We'll link the show notes below so you can check it out for yourself. Emma, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for giving us some factoids about what's going on. And if you're one of those companies out there that's the two-thirds that aren't there yet, this to me, this is a default standard. You have to adopt a way to embrace the technology and changes that are about to happen in your future. That, like, like Emma said, these changes are certainty. It's not a matter of you know if; it's a matter of when, and it's probably tomorrow. Honestly, like tomorrow, there's going to be something that you're going to have to account for. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Albert. It's been my absolute pleasure to join you. So, thank you. Thank you for joining us on IT Visionaries. Mm-hmm.